In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson and welcome to episode 381 this week on the show our dear friend artist nancy baker cahill is back for another enlightening conversation about digital art both her work and the big currents that are shaping this constantly evolving world from xr to working on massive public pieces that are immersive in a whole other dimension with stops along the way to talk about museum grade nfts and incorporating generative ai into the work it's always a treat to get to talk to nancy so i hope you enjoy eavesdropping on us now, we know a good chunk of you are headed out to South by Southwest, jealous, and we wanted to give a shout out to a few sessions that we are feeling FOMO over. First up is Sport and Immersive, the past and future of fan engagement from Richard Ayers of Rematch Live. Yes, Richard is one of our sustaining backers, and he's keen to meet you at the talk he is doing. Then we've also got Alex Kaloum and Stephanie Riggs, both past guests here on the show, are part of Is This Really Live? Performance in the Age of XR. Another recent guest of the show, Scarlett Kim of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, is part of This Is Not a Person Part 2. All this is happening as part of the conference side of South by Southwest. And of course, there's going to be activations. Look to the top of next week for our full South by Southwest FOMO list, a little article I'll be putting together over the weekend for the site, and it should be up on Monday, probably on the later side of Monday. Don't get too excited. Don't don't expect it first first thing. You know I'm a night owl, so that's the way it goes. Um, speaking of the site, this week you'll find an op-ed I did on, <laughs> I had trouble saying op-ed. I, you'll find an op-ed I did about the price of back catalog games on the Quest Store as Meta gets ready to defend its crown as the VR platform world champion against some pretty heavyweight competition, or so everyone says. Uh, the Rundown takes a trip to London for three reviews and checks in on more installation art here in Los Angeles. And we've got a special roundup of our Hunt a Killer box set coverage all of this you can find on the front page of the site right now. You'll also find a host of new listings at Everything Immersive and in the newsletter this weekend. Now, keep an eye out for more from us next week. Already mentioned that South by Southwest FOMO uh, list action. We're also going to have the first few glimpses of who will be at this year's The Next Stage Immersive Summit here in L.A. coming up June 2nd through 4th. Keep an eye out for that. Now, an update on the Patreon campaign. We've had just one new backer this week. Thank you, Tammy M., for keeping us in the fight. Um, because of that and the usual top-of-the-month churn, we're back down below 400 backers and are now $257 away from our target of hitting 3 k a month by March 15th. For those of you who don't know, that's the deadline for when we're making the call on whether or not the newsletter becomes something for backers only. So, as little as $2 a month at patreon.com slash noproscenium guarantees your access to the newsletter no matter what decision we make and keeps us from turning all of this 
that we do into subscription based only. Uh, the more people who contribute, the 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 bigger the number, the less I have to go take a day job and we have to shut down operations and this part or that part or put it all behind a paywall and force everyone. So just think of it this way. You're you're not just buying a subscription for yourself, but when you back, you're you're buying subscriptions for other people as well and keeping everything we do alive. If you're already a backer, drop us a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice and share the articles you find useful on your social media platform of choice. Uh, you've been doing that and, and, and numbers go up and, and we like to see the numbers go up uh, for all kinds of reasons, not just for the sake of the numbers going up, because every person who's exposed to what we do is someone who's got a chance to fall in love with immersive, which is why we do what we do. We are always no proscenium across social media, except on Insta, where we are no underscore proscenium. As always, big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mustry, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentis, Tom Leonetti McGuire, Winthorne, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. And as always, we're on the lookout for community partners who are up for working out special deals for our backers to create even more value for them. Hit me up at noah at noprocinium.com for details. Uh, we love to see it. And now, the show. Joining us back on the pod today is visual artist Nancy Baker Cahill, whose work touches the realms of VR, AR, and large-scale NFTs, no little monkeys for Nancy, museum pieces, thanks, including taking over Times Square, designing a future human for the atrium of the Bradbury Building, working with a robot in Miami, and her recent collection of NFT artwork is headed to LACMA's collection, in part thanks to the promise of a private collector. Nancy, it's so good to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you again. Well, it's been it's been so long. You've done so much. Uh, like you took over Times Square. Like what? <laughs> Tell that story real quick because I want to. I want to know. Oh, that, yeah, that was really exciting. So that was in July of last year of 2022. I was really fortunate to be included in a lineup of all women and non-binary creators. The um, and this was sponsored by Times Square Arts. They are a public arts organization. And every night they have something called the Midnight Moment. And so for three minutes, every night at midnight, as you might surmise, um, an artist basically gets to take over the 93 screens, all of which, by the way, are have totally different resolutions. So that's a whole other um, a hornet's God. nest. But um, and it's every and, and the way that they've structured it is each artist basically gets a month of Midnight Moments. And I was so lucky to be the July artist. Oh, wow. I was really honored. And it was, it presented such an incredible opportunity and, and set of challenges to, to use these 93 screens as, as a kind of aggregated immersive experience and arguably one of the most immersive, naturally immersive locations in the world. And, um, so my sort of the remit I made to myself or gave myself rather was to try and dissolve the screen interface and create, um, a video that felt as if it were 
pulsing, breathing, alive, on the verge of spilling out, you know, out from the screens and onto um, the onlookers below and, and really make it about very embodied and corporeal and fleshy and and sort of of the flesh. And um, it really was one of my favorite projects. It it was it was like nothing else I've ever experienced. And I will say that, you know, I hadn't quite grokked that like those screens are in 360 for some reason. I guess because I live in Los Angeles, I'd sort of imagined it more like a horseshoe. Yeah. Of course, when I got there that night, I was like, oh no, actually it's in, you're in, you're surrounded. And so it was just one of those kind of career highs where you just look up and you're like, wow, I am the luckiest person on earth to be able to do this. You've, you've got your, your fourth wall app and you've done a lot of large scale AR installations at, at, at different festival events over the years and, and linked to, you know, different efforts. Like I, you know, I, I, I won't, I won't try and use my brain to remember something because I'll probably get something <laughs> wrong, but like, I'm always like, Oh, Nancy's got a piece about this. Oh, and tied to that. Okay. Yeah. 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 But how does this, how did this using all these 93 screens and building for that compare to, you know, making an AR piece uh, in, in your own ecosystem? That's such a great question. Um, Cause they really, they're both, you know, completely different in some ways. And then, and then they have this, this overlap. So the overlap to me is a kind of conceptual um, uh, exigency or a conceptual um, undergirding that, that is, that to me really animates the piece beyond just being a kind of moment of spectacle. But that said, I think what they have in common is the way in which they allow us, the viewer, to or the viewers rather to experience what's called ergonomic awe and i'm sure you you think about this a lot and and your listeners do too that when you that there is this sort of <clears throat> physiological reaction that occurs when we stand and we look up when we look up at the stars when we look up at redwoods when we look up at a you know gorgeous cathedral any of these things where our our bodies actually are engaged in and not just our, our, you know, our minds, our, our brains, but like we have full body consciousness as we engage with something that is wondrous. Um, yeah. And I think that that can be incredibly powerful and transcendent in an artistic experience, but also one that allows some of these other themes perhaps to, to land a little differently um, because we can experience them with a different type of openness and receptivity. I, I hadn't heard the term ergonomic awe before. Like, I love, I love that one. I thought you might. It's yeah. really great. I, I actually learned it from a writer um, who was on a podcast that I was listening to. Um, and it had, I think, I can't even remember the subject of the podcast. It wasn't actually related to art. It was related to, um, I think it was related to a kind of, like a type of ideological uh, ecstasy or not mm. ideological, but like, um, different types of like belief systems and how those were, um, influenced by things like cathedrals and that kind of thing. Yeah. But it seems to me that, you know, if we, if we look to Margaret Wertheim, who is a friend and a brilliant artist who wrote the book, which I'm sure you've read the pearly gates of cyberspace, you know, among her, which is about the history of VR among her many astute observations, 
um, is included, the one that that cathedrals arguably and, and any type of space that is itself transcendent or intended to to create a sense of transcendence were sort of early VR. Um, and that just got me thinking and 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 kind of connecting the dots. That 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 sense of scale and wonder is is something a lot of people remark on, particularly in VR. Although I was also I was I was running around Reddit the other day and I was seeing some VR people, you know, in in the Reddit VR being like all yeah you know i don't i don't get that sense anymore you know it's just a screen to me again right oh, that's like, a shame. which which is which is interesting and i think maybe has something to do with like the field of view but like mm-hmm. that term it also reminds me of something that like our buddy zay used to say and not used to say like we we took zay to to galaxy's edge drink everybody uh and <laughs> uh and and zay zay talked about having ontological vertigo Oh, it, I love right? that. Oh, I'm writing that one down. Uh, yeah. And like we defined it as, oh. I'm looking up, it's in our glossary. I'm going to put the ergonomic one, the ergonomic on. Yeah, we should create a, a, yeah, yeah, immersive art glossary. That's oh, we, we have one. I just, I keep adding to it. So in this one, oh. so we define it as the sensation that sometimes occurs when you step outside of an immersive environment and into another, be it a themed or unthemed space that is a strikingly different base reality. Right? Mm. So yeah, that was when, when he like, he talked about that from like going from, from uh, from Galaxy's Edge back into like Disneyland proper and just being like, oh my god, like this is weird, right? You There's know, a like, dissonance. That vertigo is that is that very specific dissonance. And actually, I would love. There's a. I don't know if you've been yet to the next museum in Amsterdam. Um, we know the founders really well because we met them before they created it, and I would argue that they have done an exceptional job of preventing mm. ontological ontological vertigo. Um, by being so thoughtful and intentional about how they've structured the experience. So you'll go from one, you know, wildly, you know, life-changing art experience in one room, like you're, you're, you start off in Marshmallow Laser Feast, and then you're brought into a chamber where you have time to both decompress from mm-hmm. that and prepare for the next. Yeah. So there's both offboarding and onboarding all at once. And something about those breaks, those little pauses in between experiences allows you to go through a series of immersive experiences without feeling overwhelmed or like, you know, like your brain is going to short circuit or like, you know, some sort of surfeit of that dissonance that actually can almost like eclipse the experience that you've had. Um, And it just, it, it makes it all sort of seamless and fluid in a way that I think really elevates the art, elevates the, um, the practice and, uh, because that's real. That ontological vertigo is real. Um, not to use a term that's like overdetermined and acne because we're talking about yeah. reality. Well, there's there's this rupture, right? You know, yes. this, this, this break that happens and, and on the one level you want it, right? You, you want that discomfiture. You yes. want, you want to, you want to bring people out of the, the ordinary into something extraordinary and, and bring them back. But there, but there can be, you know, you can get the bends, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm not talking about the Radiohead album. I'm talking about, you know, like, yeah, like yeah, yeah. you can get, you can get that almost that like crunching, hunched over sense, even if it's not like full body, it can, yeah. it can, I mean, probably manifest just as a headache, right? Um, yeah. Or, this- or honestly, like a certain melancholy. Like there's, mm. I remember when I was really making a lot of work in VR, 
and I would show it to people in the studio, back in the studio where you first visited me. Yeah. Sometimes that moment of taking off, I, I, I was so impatient, you know, in, in the beginning and when people were experiencing it. And I wanted to know what they thought immediately. And I learned very quickly that, no, people need a minute. They need a minute when to, to, to recalibrate, to adjust, to like re-enter this realm, you know, and that you can't just, it, it's not, it's not like, you know, uh, what is it? A, the switch being flipped. It's, it's right. that, that you need that little moment of grace. Otherwise it's kind of, it can be sad. <laughs> it can be like, Oh, Absolutely. You know? Yeah. yeah. No, there's, there's all sorts of things that happen. And, and some of it, I mean, vertigo is particularly apt because like some of it is literally, literally vertigo, literally yeah. vertigo, you know, like our, our vestibular senses are kind of like, you know, trying to realign with the reality that was, I remember one of the first conversations I had about the, the technical side of VR was with one of the researchers into, um, you know, motion sickness Mm. Uh, and, and this is someone who's, this is a woman who's, you know, a researcher based in Florida. Her work was cited by Oculus. This was like a wow. better part of a decade ago. Wow. Uh, and, and I had this conversation, this was on the auspices of, you know, I was doing a story for NPR and, you know, I asked her, well, well, well what causes, what causes motion sickness? And she was like, we don't know. <laughs> and wow. you're sitting there going like, that? oh God, right? Like, we, just, we just don't know why it happens and 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 not in the sense of we don't know why it happens in vr no we don't know why motion sickness happens it could be this or it could be that Mm. but we're not entirely certain and and it's it's absolutely these the you know these experiences of ergonomic awe or ontological vertigo these things we give these these lovely scientific (laughs) names to are really a sort of like touching the limits of human perceptional ability yes. and going like, Oh, we don't know why this works, yes. but we think it's this. Yes. <laughs> We're going to yeah, guess. It's, it is something ineffable. You can't really put your finger on it, but when it happens, it's so like, you know, that that's what it, you know what I mean? Like that's the thing, but we just, like you said, we don't know why, uh, or why it, why that kind of, you know, why looking up provokes wonder, like why? Um, or what is the, what is the, honestly, what's the evolutionary advantage? Like, you know what I mean? Like what in terms of our evolutionary biology made that a valuable trait or something that, you know, somehow serves us? I'm not sure. Mm. I mean, maybe it's cause like something dropping out of the tree to attack us. So we're like, <laughs> We're like, we get the good feelies when we look up and like, oh, wow, it's so cool. And like, that's how you see the howler monkey. Like, you know, it's yeah, or coming maybe right at you. Or maybe that's when you forget your sense of self. You become decentered and you kind of become a part of a larger interconnected and interlinked ecosystem. I'm just guessing no I, I think there's something to the particularly when we think about like cathedral right mm-hmm. like the, the mm-hmm. like how a cathedral orients us to space and to others i, I think that's one of the the things that's particularly i think we gloss over in the conversation in general where we're talking yeah. about environmental storytelling or we're talking yeah. about placemaking is you know there's it's not just the architect, 
the artist, the designer in conversation with the observer. It's also the observer in relation to every other observer mm-hmm. and to the pieces, you know, the pieces themselves. Yeah. And I wonder if that's also like a really interesting, I think that gets into questions of scale, obviously. And, you know, I think that's something that I was thinking a lot when, when we were making Corpus, which is the, the five-story human in, at the Bergruen, I mean, at the, um, yeah, for the Bergruen Commission by the Bergruen Institute, but at the Bradbury in Los Angeles, you know, it's, there's something very powerful and humbling about being small Mm. and about acknowledging our uh, collective smallness in the face of something bigger, which is what I would argue is what's happening also in a cathedral, right? You're, we're all small in the cathedral together. And as we are in a forest, as we are under the stars, et cetera. And arguably not to get like preachy and political, but like, I think that's something that's, that's really deeply lacking right now that that kind of awareness um, and has allowed us to just misbehave as a species uh, on a level that is, uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's something, you know, you know, you think of the, you know, the declaration that like God is dead and, and so much of that is about rejecting the power of the church and rejecting, you know, the authority of, of that system. And for, for all of the things that were, you know, particularly bad about that system, with the rejection of the cathedral or the rejection of iconography and awe, you know, we also did lose that aesthetic element that bound us or put us into relation into things that were bigger than us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there are positives. Like I, I'm not, I'm not completely divorced from the idea that, you know, the self-actualization of an individual is, um, is a good thing, right? Like I'm not divorced yeah. from that. I think, I think it's, I think it's good. I, uh, but I'm also, of the mindset that, you know, the trick is trying to find how that interrelates with the individual as part of a greater whole, right? yeah. striking, striking that balance. And the thing I find interesting about, you know, the work we cover that we consider immersive when people are when artists are reaching, you know, to those perceptual limits is that we start to get into that conversation, if if not in an academic or, or a literal sense, we're getting into it in an experiential and a practical sense mm-hmm. where we're, we're touching on what does it mean to be a character in this piece? What does it mean for you to have agency and perspective, but at the same time, you are in a context with others, with this thing that's bigger than all of you. Mm. And, and on the visual scale, I know you're working that dimension all the time. Yeah, I think, I think uh, it requ- at least, you know, what I'm hoping in some upcoming projects that I'm doing to achieve is, is just to invite a kind of, again, awe, but also kind of humility in the face of a lot of natural ecosystems that and different types of ecosystems when we think about ecosystems and ecologies that's a that's a term that's being used a lot now 
Um, but it really is all in the service of a, the acknowledgement of the necessity to do so to survive mm. um, an almost assured sixth extinction. So how do we, and also forget about like what's happening in this country in terms of body sovereignty. Right. And it's not just the, it's not just the, the earth that's imperiled, it's individual rights. Um, yeah. and it seems every day that there's yet another infraction, yet another setback. And so I, um, that's a, that's a pretty tough mountain to scale and, um, or to climb rather. And, uh, it often feels so Sisyphean, but I think arguably that's part of the job is to just continually remind, um, ourselves of what we share and, the importance of sharing and not extracting, hoarding, oppressing all the things that we tend to do really well. Um, you know, and this is one way of, one way of getting at that is through that, that portal, that vector, whatever it is that, that opens up when we are taken out of what we consider to be a kind of waking consciousness and then into something just completely different. I'm going to, I'm going to pivot us here for a moment. Um, Cause I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about both the pieces that are getting, that are, that are going over to LACMA, but mm. also, you know, I, I, I kind of made light of it, you know, like all Nancy doesn't make little monkeys. Like <laughs> the, the past, you know, 2022 was without question, you know, the year of NFT and, and then, it feels like that's been hermetically sealed off because we're on generative AI now. Yeah. And I might have some generative AI questions for you, uh, actually, and see like what you think about that. Oh like, God. Uh, oh no, I won't. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> and then, <laughs> no, I just, I'm, I'm, I am, I'm such a, I'm such a, I'm such a, I wouldn't say I'm a neophyte, but I've, I've, I've dabbled just enough to be dangerous. And so, um, oh, but that's or, that's or, the most fun when someone's no, double the worst. Just, No, no, no. I'll, that's I some, be, that's I'll some Sorcerer's Apprentice level stuff right there. It's like, oh, did <laughs> no, you get the brooms working? <laughs> no, no, no. It's terrible. Um, no, and, and there's so many, God, there's so many brilliant, brilliant artists who are working so, so, uh, so beautifully with, with it right now. But um, yeah, I mean, I would love to talk about the the series that was or is in the process of being acquired by LACMA. Um, it's a series that I developed called Slipstream, which is, a, as you definitely know, uh, a genre of fiction that kind of traffics in the strange familiar and the familiar strange, which to me just feels so appropriate, not just for the kind of hybridity that my practice encompasses between the digital and analog, but also for this moment um, historically and, um, and certainly coming out of the pandemic. <clears throat> and so... I think, you know, I'm very much inspired by literature. I read a lot. I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of fiction. And I really wanted to actually take a stab at storytelling and not in the kind of traditional way that we think about storytelling, but to come up with a series of 10 chapters, 10 videos that were part of a larger book. So the, so the exhibition was called Table of Contents Slipstream. And it has an about the author, which is basically a scan of my head exploding and reassembling and exploding and reassembling, which uh, felt like a pretty accurate self-portrait. And um, and then a few of them, and then and then there were this was conceived of more as sort of episodic versus linear. So I thought of it more as, as an anthology. And what I did, I did two things that were outside my comfort zone. The first was I did collaborate actually with uh, with 
GPT-3 on a few of the pieces where I described the loosely described the intentions of the story, the emotional tenor of the story, and then I described it aesthetically. And the algorithm, the AI basically, you know, spat back a whole bunch of, um, in some cases, poetry, uh, and in other cases, more linear storytelling. And then I would admit that I, you know, had to edit it very, very lightly. And it took a long time. And I have to say, like, my hats off to people. This is all pre-chat GPT, obviously. But, you know, for the people that really work intimately with this software, with these algorithms, um, or these with machine learning, period, uh, you know, it's not so simple as just pressing a button. There really is an art to it. And so that was mad respect there. Um, But it really was fascinating to collaborate in that way. And it also kind of further underscored a lot of the questions I was asking through this work about authorship and uh, translation, unreliable narrators. And um, and then the other thing I was going to say is that I also wrote in lieu of a traditional, what we call tombstones in the art world, which is where you have, you know, the title, the medium, the date, you know, short description. I actually wrote fake excerpts from each story. And that was very, that was to me, was like getting on stage, you know, in a bikini, like, and then delivering like an aria or singing an aria or something like it's just like literally I couldn't have felt more vulnerable. Um, but it actually ended up being so much fun that I had to kind of stop myself <clears throat> from doing more or writing more. I thought, you know, let's 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 quit while we're ahead and keep it keep them limited. But the and the the last thing I'll say about the series is that they really each one of them is a kind of a ship of Theseus in a way. It they begin as graphite drawings on paper, really, you know, sort of abstract biomorphic drawings. I then tear them into these bespoke immersive paper sculptures, which which are very much sort of like moments of energy fro- frozen in time. They look like a, I don't know, like in a, lots of people have ex- described them as like exploding birds or angels, whatever. They look like feathers. They look like leaves. But anyway, they, they create, I've created these bespoke um, kind of tempests of paper. And then I photogrammetry them, I bring them into the 3D software, and then I light and animate them and subject them to all kinds of unholy um, digital physics and then, um, and effectors, and then, you know, basically bring them into After Effects and, and spit them out as these discrete videos. And, you know, what happens to that work as it gets torn, you know, translated, converted, you know, the process is both subtractive and additive because, you know, especially in photogrammetry, things are, things are omitted, things are, it sort of picks up on things that you don't see with the naked eye. And I really think that's sort of an interesting question for storytelling and, and an objecthood in general and authorship. And so that too was a really important um, narrative and odyssey, kind of creative odyssey that I felt I wanted to explore in the work. And, you know, at the end of the day, it also is an attempt to connect basically pre-cinema cave painting, drawing in back to, back to cathedrals, back to caves, back to these, back to VR, um, and connect it to cinema, connect it to filmmaking, connect it to um, immersive video, to, to all the things that we, that are part of our visual vernacular and language that we speak now and really understand and know how to metabolize. So uh, to me, it's literally just like different tools 
similar concerns and spanning millennia, you know? Having had a chance to see the pieces when they were at Vellum uh, on, on Melrose here in Los Angeles, like it, it was, it was striking to see pieces of yours that had resonance with the kind of work I'd seen you do uh, in VR, like back at the, at the, uh, at the studio years before now recontextualize into those, you know, you know, high resolution screens, uh, or, or you bits cycling that way and, and feeling like, you know, there's almost this, like those frames, those, those screens become sort of windows on these digital objects that, you know, could, could be visited in, in other ways. And knowing that you have this process that goes from, you know, paper and graphite all the way up to, you know, after effects, um, you know, it, it, it reminds us that it isn't as simple as just like pushing a button, even though a lot of, yeah. a lot of what's right now, a lot of what <laughs> capital is excited yeah. about is pushing a button, right? It's yeah. like, oh, uh, get me a marketing campaign right away, sir. The robot's <laughs> given us all these graphics and a whole big solution. It's like fantastic. You're fired, right? You know, like that's yeah. that's that's one lane. You're fired. Uh, give me back my that monkey we gave you. Exactly. Uh, and 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 the other side of it is exploring this as a tool. Mm-hmm. And like, I I often feel. I, I, the, the word bereft comes to mind knowing that there is all this potential with these tools to sort of unfetter the the human imagination and to like help people help shore up people who you know at least right now if like if you if you're good at wording you may be able to or and particularly if you're good at coding you may be able to translate that now directly into being good at one of these other disciplines. Mm-hmm. And yet knowing the tendency for that to just be, and now we're just going to get rid of all the craftspeople because we can like yeah. at long last we've removed humans from the equation. Like I, I often feel like the goal of all this, at least on the, 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 the technocratic side is, what if we could just get the market to sell between some AIs and remove these pesky consumers from the equation as well? Or or these um, pesky unionizers. Oh, particularly them. These people who expect to be treated, you know, to to earn a fair wage and be treated well. Yeah. 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 And we can finally no, crush I mean, them out once and for all. And, yeah. You know, communism can't ride again if we just get the unions at long last. Mwah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it really is. I mean, it's, it's hard to say, of course, what the ultimate fallout will be. Um, I'm certainly less educated about this than, than a lot of people. What I do think is really interesting. And one of the things that really was, was interesting in about this project I just did with, with this robot in Florida is thinking about human machine collaboration as something that is not, that is actually complementary, that mm. isn't um, one supplanting the other. 
um, that is less extractive. That, that I mean, because at the end of the day, and I had I had these incredible conversations with a roboticist down there, brilliant guy, who, you know, basically said so many of our problems can be solved algorithmically um, in concert with the right kind of human stewardship. And of course, those things are rarely profitable. And that is why we find ourselves in the position we find ourselves in. And when profit is the end goal all the time, um, there's a certain inexorability to that. I think the thing that, that I find interesting in the abstract and terrifying too, I mean, we haven't even talked about quantum computing, but um, there's a whole other subject, but like when, when computers communicate with each other and develop their own languages and we actually are shut out, <laughs> that's actually the moment I think we should be most terrified of. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Because there's, there's a thunk of the thunk when you just said that too. It's like somehow like the machine knows, all right, this channel clear, <laughs> it's this channel's Cyberdyne systems are online, pull the plug, no, pull all the plugs. Yeah, no, no, it's like, it's really, I know we could do like a whole bit, but I mean, but I think, you know, there's a certain like, in the same way that people treat fascism, you know, which is like, oh, well, it's happening to someone else, not me. I think there's a tendency too with AI to think like, oh, that's happening to another industry, not mine. Right. Um, I think it's pretty clear that it will end up influencing and or inflecting most industries. The question is to what degree and and how is it steward is it stewarded at all? Um, is it so stewarded how? at all? I think is the operative question. Like, yeah. is there is there any will to make sure that people still have a seat at the table? And yeah. I'm I'm you color me cynical five days out of seven. Oh, color me cynical one. seven out of seven. Yeah. I got to have hope. I got to have, if I don't have hope, rebellions are built on hope. If, uh, drink. That's true. That's um, true. if I don't have hope. <laughs> okay. Six out of seven. <laughs> okay. Good. <laughs> good. I've bullied you into having hope one day a week. <laughs> I have a threat. Did you ever read, did you ever read the road by Cormac McCarthy? No, because I like not being depressed, but okay, I, okay. Well, no, I was going to say that's a six out of seven. That's a 6.99 out of seven, oh, wow. but there is just a thread. There's just a thread of hope, which keeps you turning the pages. That's what I would say. Okay. Well, that's devastating. But That's, there's just that. So I, I'm with you. I can't do it without, but I might need a little bit less. There was something about the time that the road was becoming popular. Cause I was like, what? Like the movie came out of what? Like late Bush era, maybe yeah, very early Obama yeah, yeah. era. And I just, I was not, I was not in the headspace for it. And then what was it? No country for old men oh, yeah. came out relatively the same. And that, that was the one of the bleakest freaking things I ever oh, saw, yeah. oh, you know? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Great now, movie. Bleak yeah. as hell. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now all you have to do is like watch a Nexium documentary. Like, oh, I've watched all of those. Oh, yeah. That's, that's for another podcast. That's for another podcast. Yeah. Yeah. But so, but no, I, I agree with you. I think we need to, I think the key is stewardship. These machines are not yet conscious, at least I don't, as far as I know, maybe oh, no, they're, they're becoming, but like, you know, I, I think our consciousness, our interventions will be essential. Um, they'll be essential. And if, and if we can't manage that, um, you know, I don't see how it could get worse, but it could. On that fun note. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the sad you thing is. You knew what you were getting. You knew what you were getting. No, no I know. I know. Well, I mean, sometimes I don't, 
I don't know. It's actually, sometimes I don't know. I don't, I don't know what I'm kidding. I know, I know what I bring and, mm. and we wound up right where yep. <laughs> came full circle <laughs> in my own mood for the day. Um, here's, here's the thing that's, that's, that's frustrating at this moment, particularly for all of you listening, is that Nancy and I both have to go. Uh, <laughs> so like we don't get to like move necessarily on to like, to get the, to get to the, Curie, the Curie seven topic. out of seven, right? We can't get you that seventh day. You're going to, you're going to take yourself there this time out. Um, but you can hear in our voice that that at least at least we're we're laughing at the gallows together. Oh, and um, listen, the uh, absurdity and humor. I mean, thank God for humor is all oh, I can say. Humor so saves everything always. Yeah. Just being able to laugh, even even dark comedy, um, is the saving grace. Oh, dark comedy is the best comedy of all. Right, it's the best comedy. Um, yeah. before before we do do break off though um one thing we talked about before we turned the microphones on and and you've you've talked about your process but you've got a solo show coming up that's going to illustrate that process it sounds like oh yeah thank you so much for for remembering that yes i have to make sure you get your plug in so yeah (laughs) Yeah, i'm really excited about this actually and it's it's actually going to be a traveling exhibition which is really exciting um we've already got um, one an, an additional museum lined up and a bunch of others that we're talking to. Um, but in in October of this year, I have a solo show at the Georgia Museum of Art, and it's called Drawing It Out. And it really is actually related to what drawing, how, how do we understand drawing? How do we... Um, not just sort of metabolize it, but how do we how do we understand it? So it it's, it really traces that process, actually very much of slipstream, but takes it to AR. So lots of drawing on paper, which then literally physically in the space become these three dimensional immersive drawing installations, which then become videos, which then ultimately become augmented reality. And um, I don't know. I'm I'm just kind of interested in seeing how the public engages with new and expanded ideas around mark making and what the impact of that mark making can be when mediated through these different additional tools and technologies, which again are very much related to, in my opinion, a very primal desire and urge to tell stories and tell them with light and tell them with line. And it's that simple. I love it. I love bringing it back to being that simple. Yeah. Um, That almost... I won't do a riff right now. I'll do a riff off mic. Uh, <laughs> I can't wait. Rubs hands together. Keep recording. Yeah, keep recording. I don't know. Anyway, Nancy, thank you so much. Oh, uh, thank you. Always, it's always overdue. Every time, even even if it, we see each other like three weeks from now, it'll still be overdue. So, oh my god, um, there's never enough time. Ever. Never enough. Once again, I want to thank Nancy Baker Cahill for being our guest on the show this week. Check the show notes for how to follow along with what Nancy's up to next via her website. That's it for the show this week. Uh, It's rather late on Thursday when I'm wrapping this up and I'm going to put it onto the server so I can turn around faster uh, tomorrow rather than waiting for all the upload shenanigans to happen. Uh, If you were looking forward to a Noah rant this week, well, I'm sorry, you don't get one. But that's okay, because next week is a TeamSpeak episode, and you've got the review crew here, uh, a whole bunch of us uh, coming through to talk about uh, all sorts of stuff. We run long, so if you're missing uh, a five-star runtime, 
Well, it's not quite a five star runtime. It's not like a two hour long show, but uh, it's like an hour and 20. It's it's a big one, big conversation. So uh, look forward to that one next week. The cat is meowing. I gotta go deal with who knows what right now. Let's do the credits. The associate producer of this program is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar the Podcast. Special thanks to Shavano Lachlan for voicing our intro. The No Pro Podcast is written, edited, hosted, produced, and mixed by yours truly. I actually read it. You can tell I'm tired because I'm actually reading the script. I'm Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs> <laughs>